Welcome back to another episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David Johnson. I'm joined by the other guy. I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. Yeah, whatever. And uh, the third chair, the third chair this week, occupied by Randall freaking Rouser. Otherwise, just Randall Rouser. Randall, how you doing? Yeah, middle name freaking. I like that. I'm doing well. Thanks. Good to be back here. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, those of uh, you who find this voice pairing familiar, Randall and I uh, met on the unbelievable show. We had a follow-up show uh, on this show. It kind of kicked off the show, actually. And uh, it turns out that uh, Randall's not the devil. I, 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 I like him after all. And so... Uh, there you go. Uh, before we get started, though, I just want to introduce what we're going to be talking about. Uh, and before I do that, I want to say some nice things about Randall's books. Uh, so I don't have any book titles in front of me. I'm going to let Randall introduce himself here in a minute and tell you just some things that he wants you to know. Maybe if he has a website, the current project, uh, alter call, I don't know uh, what, what Randall wants to uh, say to you that he thinks is important, but I want to say this because I think it's important. Randall uh, is an excellent writer, and I, as a person who uh, is a maker of words myself, uh, I love uh, reading Randall's uh, works, and my favorite of his works is probably a book that he wrote with John Loftus. Uh, Randall, do you remember the name of that book? I, I, yes, I do. Okay. It is God or Godless. Yes, God or Godless. It's uh, it's a fantastic book. It's kind of a conversation uh, almost between Randall and John Loftus. John Loftus is one of my favorite skeptics. Randall, one of my favorite Christians. And they, they are both very articulate, uh, both uh, academic, but they know how to uh, talk about high concepts in very accessible ways. And so I really enjoyed uh, reading that, and I recommend it to this audience because it is kind of the the manifesto almost of, of this show, Skeptics and Seekers, when you get a uh, well-qualified skeptic and a well-qualified seeker together to um, present their positions that way. This is not the only book of its kind Randall wrote, and I'm sorry, I, I'm blanking on the name of the other person that you wrote a, a book with that was like this. Can you help me out? Uh, just consult your show notes. Consult, consult the show notes. Those links yeah. will be in there, people. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. yeah. Okay, so, so I also wrote one with Justin Schieber called An Atheist and a Christian Walk Into a Bar. That's it. Covers some similar territory. Justin but, Schieber. Uh, one of the big differences, the, the book with Loftus, we have 20 short chapters on 20 sh- topics. So it's a very punchy and quick, fast-paced. The one with Schieber, we've really got six major topics that we – dig into in six chapters so it goes more into depth on a, a narrower range of topics yeah it, it look they're fantastic um and i have lots of guests on the show we uh we do this all the time and i never push products like this but i i, I i'm speaking from the heart here uh and so we've got i know that we've got readers in the audience people who are uh very um you know, serious about this stuff on both sides. And so I, I am just recommending Randall's books because they're some of my favorites and also a chance to say, I, I hope one day I, I rise to the level where I can co-write one with Randall myself, because what I would like to do that uh, Randall hasn't done yet is be the 
um, the kind of the barroom philosopher type person, the academic Christian and the non-academic response to that, because I actually think that this stuff should be accessible. And although I could write on an academic level, I don't like to. I like to talk to, uh, about this on the simplest possible level. And uh, maybe one day when Randall is uh, all out of uh, qualified writers, <laughs> he'll agree to write one with me. So uh, that said, uh, I'm going to turn it over uh, to Randall and let him tell you uh, anything else about himself that he wants you to know. Randall, tell the audience who the heck you are uh, and uh, why they should care about what you have to say. Wow. Well, uh, so I'm a professor in Edmonton, Canada at a seminary. Uh, a North American Baptist is my denomination, my background. Uh, I've been teaching here at Taylor Seminary for 17 years, I think. Uh, and I've written or I've written and co-written 11 books. So three of them, uh, two of them were with atheists that we've just mentioned already. And I've got another apologetics book uh, and then a bunch of other ones as well. So I like to do uh, a a blog at my website, randallrouser.com, and uh, do public speaking, some debates, events like this, and just have a lot of fun. Have a lot of fun with uh, people on the journey, thinking hard about big questions. If you don't, if you don't mind me cutting in, uh, Randall, do, do you mind with our other guests? We usually uh, have them just give sort of a short introduction as to their faith journey, how they came to faith in Christ and that sort of thing. Do you, do you mind just giving a couple couple notes on that front? Yeah, no problem. Uh, actually, I wrote a, my most recent book uh, is called What's So Confusing About Grace, and that is a 300-page account of exactly what you just requested. But mm. I'll try to go from 300 pages down to around half a page. Let's see. So I was uh, born into a Christian family, sort of Pentecostal background. Mm. My parents came from the this tradition where you're sort of encouraged to make a personal decision. And so I made a personal decision to follow Jesus when I was four or five years old. Uh, and then I had a faith that kind of changed and over the years and evolved in various ways. So for example, when I was in my teen years, I would have, uh, as, as I, as David says in his uh, essay about uh, young as creationism, that Ken Ham is on the side of the angels. I would have held that view as well in high school. Uh, and then that gradually changed and, Increasingly, I would say my theological perspective became a little more progressive in several different ways in my understanding of Scripture uh, and the nature of revelation in Scripture and some of my understanding of doctrines like hell and, and so on. Uh, so I would still consider myself a Big Ten evangelical, but probably, and I would look back on, on the Christian I was growing up and think that I was probably a little more fundagelical or fundamentalist in my orientation growing up. Uh, and part of that, part of that journey of, of change came with, as I gradually was inducted into the wider Christian tradition, because when I grew up, we didn't, for example, even know what the Apostles' Creed was. I didn't hear the Apostles' Creed until university, but it has a way of, of changing your faith and getting your roots a little deeper when you encounter the deeper Christian tradition. So as I did degrees, uh, undergraduate, graduate, and then postgraduate degrees in religion and theology, that just had a way of expanding and, and shaping my faith. Okay, fantastic. So let's uh, let's talk. Uh, let's introduce the topic uh, today. So rewind your clocks back uh, two or three weeks or a few years, whenever you encounter this podcast. Um, there was an unbelievable show. No, really, the name of it was unbelievable uh, with Justin Briley. 
And uh, the guest was Ken Ham and some other guy. Uh, Jeffrey, let's see, Jeffrey, um, Jeffrey, I should have written that down. Um, but in uh, Ken Ham, you know, a, a lot of people like to. Oh, sorry, Jeff Swearing. Jeff Swearing, that's right. So a lot of, I was hoping someone would come in and save me with that. <laughs> um, so a lot of people like to uh, dogpile on Ken Ham because he's he's kind of a cartoon character. And um, I, I, I would be right there along with him <laughs> most of the time. But I, I decided, uh, actually, uh, after listening to Ken Ham and really giving him a, as much of a fair listen as I could... Uh, I thought that he was more right uh, in his presentation on that podcast. Now, I, I think, you know, I think he was wrong for all the reasons that most people think he was wrong. But I, I thought, theologically speaking, he was more right. He had a better presentation. Uh, so just as a debater, I felt he was better. Uh, I thought he was more coherent. Um and just once again, theologically, as I understand the Bible and uh, what it says, how it's meant to be taken, uh, I, th- I felt that Ken Ham was more right uh, than Jeff there. And so I uh, wrote a post um, about that. Unbeknownst to me, while I was doing that, Randall Rouser was also uh, writing a blog post. And uh, Randall Rouser was a bit roused, uh, riled up. And uh, he thought that Ken Ham was more or less a cartoon character, and he um, and he wrote why it was that he thought that Ken Ham was wrong. I thought that was an excellent article uh, as well. But both Randall and I were uh, unsatisfied with the show because uh, I think the more important part of the show, uh, besides the science, because I think that Randall and I probably agree mostly on the science, uh, is the theology. I I believe that the reason why this is important is because the Bible, Christianity never gets out of Genesis uh, one through three for me. Uh, and I, and I think that it, I think it dies a bad death there and it continues to die throughout the scripture. Um, and I think that Ken Ham pointed out some of the reasons inadvertently why it does. So I am making a positive claim today and it's kind of a two part claim. Uh, young earth theology is compatible with the Bible. And the Bible is wrong about the age of the earth, so Christianity is untenable. The second part of the claim is old age theology is incompatible with the Bible, and the and because the universe is old, Christianity is also untenable. Um, and so, either way, Christianity kind of becomes untenable, and it's and it's more about the theology. And so today, Randall and I are going to talk a little bit about the theology. Some of you uh, might know, some of you might not. This this question of uh, the literal reading of the creation story is part of one of, the, one of the big pieces of the puzzle that kind of pushed me away from faith. So I think that's true for a lot of people. I want Randall to have a chance to present the other side of why, in fact, it shouldn't uh, push you away from faith and why it's not... Um, uh, a theological issue. Randall, have I set that up uh, well enough? Would you like to add something before I make my opening statement here? Uh, no, I think that that's fair. So, I mean, the, the the thing is that you kind of, you see Ham as as a friend in a sense because um, 
ultimately you think his view is untenable, but if that's what Christianity entails, then that makes Christianity untenable. Yes. And, uh, and, and I think actually that's one reason precisely, one of many reasons why I, I think Ham is, is deeply mistaken is I think Christianity is, is true. And certainly I do think that his view makes Christianity very untenable. And that's one among many reasons to reject what he's saying. But of course, it's for me, it's it's far more at play than that. So yeah, this is a, a question or a topic that we could see it's uh, going down. It, it's it's tapping into some pretty deep bedrock at this point. Yes. So it's a good it's a good topic to debate. Yes, and um, Randall is a good person uh, to talk to. I mean, I I try not to. I, I don't want to have guests on more than once in a season. But I got to tell you. Um, Randall's brand of Christianity, uh, although I don't buy it, if if I were looking at Christianity, I would I would like Randall's brand of Christianity to be true. Uh, so later today, even though this is not the order that you're going to hear these podcasts in, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Michael Brown. He represents a brand of Christianity that I do not want to be true. <laughs> and so... Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting day to me, um, for me, for for that reason. But so let's uh, let's jump in. So I uh, I think that this is a matter of literary integrity. Um, I think first and foremost, uh, since I don't have any faith on the line anymore, uh, I think I would start with just looking at the Bible as a piece of literature. And very simply trying to understand what the what the writers were trying to say, what what is it they're trying to communicate? This is what I call literary integrity, and uh, I believe that some writings are made uh, as a mirror, kind of for you to look into and feedback on what you see, and other writings are made uh, as in a more straightforward, legalistic, if you will, uh, document or instruction manual. You don't read into it at all. You read it and you learn from it and you conform yourself to it. Uh, and I do tend to think that the Bible is more uh, the latter than the former. And I know that that's one area of disagreement uh, that Randall and I have. But I, I do think that as just as a matter of literary integrity, figuring out what it is the the, the writers were trying to say and understanding it from that point of view and trying not to improve upon it or fix it. Uh, And I think that that is the challenge uh, that Christians have today. There are a lot of things in the Bible that they read and they want to fix it. Uh, And they, they believe that they have the literary right to do that. And I don't think that's the kind of document that the Bible is. So the, the first part of my point is I, I think the way I do, because, uh, not because I'm trying to polemicize against the Bible or straw man it in some way. This is what I think the original writers were trying to say. So in terms of young earth creationism, I think that that fits with the science of the day. Now, I don't even know that they would have used a word like science in their day. Uh, you know, we're talking Bruns, Bronze Age people here. But, you know, people... Uh, to the extent that people think about the world and ask, you know, big questions for their time of, you know, how, how we got here, you know, how, how did this all start? How is it made? I think that they were doing science to the best of their ability. And when we consider the science of the day, 
I don't think that there were a lot of people at that time looking at the sky and thinking, oh, the universe is unfathomably big, unfathomably big. Uh, they probably looked at the universe much the way I did when I was six. Uh, you know, it was big, but, you know, as I learned how big it was, you know, my mind boggled. I don't think that anyone was thinking that at that time. And I don't think they were thinking that it was unfathomably old uh, either. I mean, the the Earth, at least for some of the thinkers then, was a snow globe with stars painted on the top. And, you know, there's this hard shell uh, and water was just above it. And, um, you know, it was kind of held in place by the, by this uh, firmament thing. And um, all you have to do is kind of read read the passages about the firmament to get an idea of what they thought the, the world was. Uh, and so I think, you know, it is compatible with the science of the day that they believed that the earth was, uh, that the world, and by world I mean that which encompasses everything, was both small and young. And uh, as far as the processes that created it, I think that they were very happy, uh, unchallenged by the notion uh, that it was just spoken into existence. So I don't see any reason not to read these things as literally as they seem to be. Uh, it's it's not incompatible, I think, uh, with the science of the day. Secondly, uh, explanation by analogy. So they kind of tell us what they what they thought it meant. So when I say they, uh, the, the, there there were what forty something biblical writers. Hey, Randall, help me out. You're a theological professor. How many how many hands were involved in writing the Bible that we know of? Oh, that's an extraordinarily complex question that has no determinate answer. It, it, it's, 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 there's no answer because, for example, uh, how many writers and editors or redactors had their hands on the book of Genesis? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the standard four-source theory that became popular in the late 19th century, uh, that gives us a tip of the iceberg, but there could have been more than that. And that would, be, that would mean that there were at least four sources in, in uh, the Torah, Genesis, uh, through Deuteronomy, but then there were also redactors who were editors who were bringing together those various pieces. A book like Isaiah, there could be two or three authors of Isaiah and redactors that brought that material together. So uh, there's no clear answer. Yeah, so that's that's actually the answer that I would agree with too. But growing up, I grew up very conservative. And so the, the answer would have been, you know, a few dozen uh, for us. Uh, they were, we were pretty solid on the number of writers we thought it was. But even then, even if you take the conservative answer, um, that's a, it's a lot of people. And so there's there's kind of an assumption that there's at least a, a kind of a, a conservative assumption that there's one thread going throughout the Bible and that everyone who had their hands on the Bible had the same knowledge and they thought the same things about everything. And it was just kind of one continuous thought. And as I... Uh, begin studying the Bible more critically, uh, I had to let go of that notion the Bible wasn't just one continuous thought uh, and that different people had different ideas about different things. Uh, and so we can see in the Bible how different writers thought about the Genesis story because my, my assumption even today is that they all had some access to uh, these early stories. Uh, it was kind of part of the the... Jewish uh, uh, culture and became a part of the Christian culture. And so whatever books they didn't all have in common, I'm thinking that that uh, Genesis 
uh, at least was uh, one of the ones they had in common in the creation story. They would have known the creation story much the same as we do today. And so we can track what they thought about the creation story. Uh, and they explained uh, various things by that creation story. So I'm not going to get into a, a lot of examples here, but I would say that uh, one way that you can see how some writers thought about it was uh, with the Sabbath. This, the Sabbath was presented uh, as six days. Uh, I won't bother reading the passage, but if you want to pause here, you can read Exodus uh, 20, verse 8 through 11. Uh, and you can uh, you can read kind of uh, how I think this writer w- was using a literal, the, the, the creation took six days, the Sabbath is six days, and then a rest. Um, and we can see that in other parts of the scripture too, not just the Old Testament, uh, but that continues on into the New Testament. And I would just suggest that if they, if it wasn't a six literal days. Many of the analogies, analogies and examples that um, go back to that period just wouldn't make a lot of sense. Uh, it does make sense if they were thinking that it was a, a young earth six-day creation and that the rest of the, the creation story was literal. Uh, so read the blogs. Um, I'll uh, end that point there. Uh, and finally, or at least next, there's the idea of prior perfection. So I think that one of the things that uh, writers, both Old and New Testament writers, had in mind was this idea that uh, things were created in a state of perfection, and then they kind of went to hell after that. And the the reason they went to hell is because of human involvement. Humans did something to bring perfection down. Uh, this is a common theme uh, in uh, Judaism, it's a theme in Christianity. I think it's a theme in uh, probably a lot of religions, uh, for that matter. Uh, and so this idea that there was a prior perfection, if it was an old earth, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Uh, this, this theme simply wouldn't make sense. It really only makes sense um, uh, in the face of a young earth. And so, again, uh, I think that the Bible... Um, is is pretty clear about that. I point out uh, Isaiah uh, sixty five twenty five. We might get back to that uh, in some of our uh, conversation. Um, and uh, it, one other point that I'll make, uh, just kind of going through my notes and seeing what I can uh, not say. Once again, if you want to hear the all of my thoughts that are rattling in my head, just read read the blog post. Um, I think that. It is hard to make a case that the six, the young earth part shouldn't be taken literally, but the rest of the creation story should be taken literally. And I think that the Bible, even when they're not talking about a literal six days, does the writers of the Bible do seem to take other parts of the creation story quite literally, such as Adam and Eve and the fall. And I think that much of Christian doctrine simply cannot survive without a literal Adam and Eve and a literal fall. Uh, And you can't have them, I don't think at least, without a six-day creation. I've heard arguments that try to give us some kind of literal Adam and Eve without a literal uh, young earth, but they don't make a lot of sense. I don't know if Randall wants to make some of those arguments today or not. Uh, But I would say that the the, uh, Christian doctrine is inexorably linked 
to a literalist reading of Genesis, at least in some parts of it. And so if Randall wants to make the case that Genesis shouldn't be read literally, then he's going to have to give us some kind of uh, key as to which parts to read literally, which parts not to read literally. Uh, hopefully he talks about how he thinks that we should read that. So I'm going to, I'm going to let that uh, go for my opening statement for now and just say that uh, theologically, I don't believe it is possible to untie a, a, some type of literal uh, reading of Genesis with a theology that goes through the Bible. And once you try to do that, um, then the theology falls apart. And I'm not entirely sure why anyone should try to read past Genesis uh, 1 through 3. Randall, why am I wrong? Yeah, so now we'll we'll turn it over to Randall for his opening speech, uh, responding to David's opening one there. Great. Thanks, Dale. It might, it might be uh, maybe uh, overstating or overselling it to say I have a speech, but I, I'll, I'll ramble for a while for sure based upon what David just said. So first of all, I think that David is, in my view, exhibiting an example of motivated reasoning that he wants Christianity to be false. And so he has a vested interest in um, providing special credibility or emphasis upon interpretations of Christianity that are more likely to make it false, such as young earth creationism. And that's why he takes what I think is a very strong view that uh, any view that disagrees with young earth creationism is simply untenable. Uh, Although he does say that he would like my brand of Christianity to be true, but apparently I have flouted literary integrity. So let me start maybe with the idea of literary integrity because this is important to me. I did a degree in English literature, and I think it's very important to interpret texts carefully uh, in their historical and literary contexts. And the first thing I'd want to be clear on is that is that we appreciate that the Bible is not just a piece of literature. That was a phrase David used, a piece of literature, but rather that the Bible is a complex library of pieces of literature from 2,000 to 3,000 years ago, written in three different languages, in a variety of historical contexts, very alien from the contemporary reader. And if I were to use an analogy, I think maybe a helpful analogy would be the Norton Anthology of American Literature. So this is a well-known textbook in English lit, and it's a 2,000-page collection of writings that define the American experience. And uh, those writings include poetry, they include uh, short stories and novellas, they include essays, uh, um, accounts of liberation and socio-political change, famous speeches, and so on. And it would be very naive just to go in and assume that all of those texts are to be read in the same way. We have to be very careful to each one of those texts and understand and appreciate what the writers are doing in that context. And it is the same thing with Scripture. I don't think David would disagree with that, but it is important that we appreciate that we have to have due concern for the origin and the context of each text, and to be careful to appreciate that the contemporary English reader who's encountering a 3,000-year-old text like we have in Genesis 1 and 2 is not going to obviously have all the meaning of that text or its application and significance available to them, so they have to have due deference to it. Uh, Second thing I would also want to say as a caveat is that when David described good hermeneutical practice, or in other words, good principles of interpretation, he located them all within the authorial intent of the human author. 
And a Christian is not limited to that perspective. In fact, from a Christian perspective, God is the primary author of Scripture. Uh, and at times, that can give meaning that is greater than or even different from the meaning of the original human author. So, for example, Christian theologians have speculated about whether there are what we call the Stygia Trinitatis, or references to the Trinity in the Old Testament. And this is a controverted topic, but the reality is that it is certainly possible that the, the Old Testament anticipates the doctrine of the Trinity revealed in the New Testament, even though that wasn't aware, something that the original human authors in the Old Testament were aware of. Um, so this would be what theologians call the census plenier or the fuller sense of scripture. So that's the second thing I would wanna say. First of all, again, that it's a diverse collection. Second of all, there can be greater meaning uh, that the text can be doing something from the divine perspective that was not immediately obvious to the human author. A third thing I would want to maybe uh, point out is very important to appreciate is that there is significant accommodation in scripture. This is a concept of good pedagogy, or in other words, good teaching practice. So to be a good teacher, what you do is you meet your audience where they are at uh, with the concepts that are available to them. And I think uh, that this is clearly what God did within Genesis 1 and 2, is that he reveals himself within the science of the day. Uh, so I think David rightly noted some aspects of the ancient science of the day. He made a quick reference to, for example, the hard dome that was understood to be above the earth that the Hebrews believed existed. It's in Hebrew, the Rakia. Um, and so the, the Hebrews believed that there was an ocean above the earth, and then there was a hard dome, and then there was earth, and then below the earth, there was Sheol, or the realm of the dead, and then there was another ocean underneath that as well. And so, for example, in the flood narrative of Genesis 6 to 9, what you literally have is the floodgates of heaven from the ocean above opening up, and God floods the earth in order to punish it, and also water bubbling up uh, through the land from the ocean below. And so God returns temporarily the creation from an order of cosmos to the original chaos that was referenced at the beginning of Genesis 1. This whole narrative is being told within the science of the ancient world. So why would God do that? Why would he reveal himself to the ancient Hebrews through their science? Well, the reason is uh, because the message, the primary message he was making to them was not a message, a lesson about science. It was a lesson about theology about God and his relationship to creation, that he is the sovereign creator overall, that there is a brokenness that has entered into creation, etc. cetera. Uh, and so to confuse that message with the incidental form it has received in the ancient science, I think is, is simply to kind of uh, miss the main point of the story by getting focused on the incidental details through which the story is told. I would also caution about uh, assuming that the other authors of scripture just interpret Adam uh, or, or the Genesis 1 and 2 and, and Genesis 3 false stories just in a, in a straightforward literal fashion. I think there's much more than that going on there. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, refers to Jesus as the last man, and he contrasts that with Adam as the first man. Well, Jesus, of course, wasn't chronologically the last man. So what, what uh, Paul is doing here is he's establishing two archetypes or two models of being human. The first is Adam and the second is Jesus. And it maybe helps us to keep in mind that the very word Adam is actually not a proper name. It simply means in Hebrew humanity. So what we have in Genesis 1 uh, through 3 
are, are two ancient accounts of origins in Genesis 1 and 2 stitched together by an ancient redactor, and they form what we call an etiology or an account of origins. Uh, and they're setting up origins through the use of archetypes, through the use of symbol, and we have to be very careful about reading science and literalism straight out of the text, which I think is exactly one of those errors that we are liable to make as contemporary readers who are unfamiliar with these original ancient texts. So uh, that's probably enough for us to get started, and we can just go into the questioning and debate portion. Perfect. Yeah, so, so yeah, as it's, um, unless... David has any initial questions. I, I think I'll actually turn it over to Randall first, since David's the one making the claim, uh, just to kickstart off. So I, I do want to cut in and just say sure. one one follow-up thing real quickly before turning it over to Randall. Sure. While it is true that I am picking up Can uh, Ham and swinging him around like a bludgeon against Christians, um, that is true. <laughs> that is, it is not um, so much uh, motivated reasoning as that, because the position that I'm stating now is the position that I was taught as a child, it is the position I grew up believing. Uh, it is a Christian that I fought for, that I taught, uh, that I studied um, academically. It is, uh, you know, to the extent that I had any academic study. So it, this is the position that I lived with. Um, and was nearest and dearest to my heart. So, uh, yeah, it, it happens to be on this side of the, the, the fence, a convenient bludgeon against Christians, but it's also what I actually believe the Bible is saying. I, I want to make it clear, though, I tried out liberal Christianity, too, uh, before leaving the door. So I didn't leave as a conservative Christian at all. I left as a liberal Christian. Um, but I found that the theology... Uh, didn't work at all when you try to read this uh, with the old earth in mind. So even once I, once I actually develop an old earth view, that's when the real problems started for me. So it, it wasn't so much the young earth uh, theology that was the problem. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. Uh, well, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, do you want me just to jump in then? Yeah, I'll let... I'll let well, if you're going to add, like, in, before you engage in the discussion, because um, David did bring up the motivated reasoning, um, so I just want to ask one quick question, and then you, yeah. you guys. Um, so on the motivated reasoning, so I, I noticed, uh, Randall, um, that, yeah, you, I, I think that you're somewhat correct to bring this up, but couldn't a skeptic say that you're engaging in motivated reasoning, at least in the sense that one of your reasons uh, is that you don't like young earth creationism is because it makes Christianity look untenable. Um, wouldn't that be a form of motivated reasoning as well? Or why or why not? Well, I think that we all have different perspectives and different starting points and presuppositions and potential biases. And it's important for all of us to, to be upfront about them. So, I mean, that's why I actually said at the beginning that one of the reasons I think that this is likely false is because it's inconsistent with something I believe to be true. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, for example, I believe uh, all things being equal, I, I think you should defer to scientific consensus when you, unless you have some very good reason not to. Well, there's overwhelming scientific consensus on, on the kinds of issues that we're addressing here, such as the age of the Earth and the universe. Now, of course, scientists dither about whether the universe is 13.7 billion years old or 13 billion years old, but it's certainly not six to 10,000 years old. So unless I have some good reason to think that's false, 
Um, I'm going to continue to believe that that consensus is true. Likewise, I believe Christianity is true. Unless I have some good reason to think that's false, I'll continue to believe it's true. And that's my background that I bring into this debate so that anything that comes up inconsistent with one of those two factors is going to be liable for my skepticism. Now, I appreciate that David, of course, is, um, I mean, he, he can say, well, the reason I'm, I'm uh, endorsing this position is because I was raised with it. And, you know, I, we can we can talk about motivations all, all day long and stuff, so I don't want to get sidetracked on it. But I would just say that that clearly uh, he's in a different epistemic position now than he was growing up, because growing up, he believed this was true and that Christianity was true. And he now believes it, it's false and Christianity is false. So even though he's still inclined to think people like Ham are correct um, in terms of their consistency with the text and theologically, I think he's nonetheless doing it from a very different motivation than he did growing up. Gotcha. Perfect. Okay. Uh, I'm so certainly Sal. enjoying it a lot more. Say, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, so yeah, I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Randall, to kick off sort of a, a back and forth uh, Q and A or discussion between you guys, since since Dave is the one making the actual positive claims here. Um, so yeah, take take it away. Okay. I, I, maybe I'll just start off with something David kind of said here at the end, which is that he tried liberal Christianity and that didn't work for independent reasons. And I want to push back on what I think here is a sort of framing of the issue where you have, quote unquote, conservatives over against, quote unquote, liberals, because I think that that's somewhat of a misbegotten framing of the issue. I think rather that with young earth creationism, what you have is a relatively historically idiosyncratic view, which is inconsistent with the wider diversity of opinion that one finds within the Christian tradition. Uh, a good example to, to appreciate this fact is a book by Ronald Numbers called The Creationists. He's a historian of science. Uh, and Numbers points out that the popularization of the young earth creationist hermeneutic uh, came through a series of uh, happenstance um, that traced back to the fundamentalist controversies of the 1920s and the popularism of a particular geologist named George McCready Price who came out of the Seventh-day Adventist tradition. And that sort of was somehow introduced into the mainstream of conservative Christianity and became wedded with conservative Christianity. But if you go back earlier uh, to the earlier part of the beginning of the 20th century and the end of the 19th century, you will find that there is a much more widespread embrace of theistic evolution among conservative Christians. And so, for example, a, a little noted fact is that within the Fundamentals, which is a this group of booklets that were published between 1914 and 1918, and they became the rallying cry for the fundamentalist movement, they had contributions contributions from James Orr and B.B. Uh, Warfield, who were both theistic evolutionists. So ironically, even in the very origins of fundamentalism as a conservative movement, there were theistic evolutionists. And it was only later on with the popularization of people like, like George McCready Price uh, from Seventh-day Adventism, that young earth creationism somehow in the minds of many people becomes wedded with conservative Christianity. So I think that's a historical anomaly, and I definitely want to push back on that point. Okay, so I'm just going to pretend that was a question and uh, answer it with um, the Christian Post, uh, an article from uh, a few years ago. I'll uh, I'll put a link in um, the, um, the the blog post. By the way, people, I, you hear me say this every week. I'll put, I'll put drop that link in the blog post, and I almost never do. If I forget, it, just remind me. I, I have the links. I just 
get a little bit lazy when I make the blog. Sorry. Uh, but I'll put up a link in there, and this will be my answer. Young Earth Creationist uh, Ministry... Uh, young, Eighth, young Earth Creationist Ministry's Biggest Critics, Christians. And within this article, it states... Now, this is not uh, talking about history. It was just stating today um, that 46% it makes it has three different groups. I think the number is 42%, 46%, and 23%, something like that. The 42% are uh, preachers, pastors, uh, that do not believe in a young earth. They believe in old earth creationism or old earth, um, some type of evolutionistic creation. The 46% of pastors are the ones that believe in old earth creations, the biggest number by far. And then the 23% uh, are just uh, uh, Americans who uh, believe, uh, non-Christians who believe in a young earth. So that was 23%. But uh, the point that I'm making here is that the biggest number of uh, American pastors, not quite to this day, this was in, I want to say, 2012, uh, were teaching out of out of their heartfelt belief in, in reading of Scripture and whatever background they had in seminary education that the Bible was teaching a young earth creationism. And so you can call it idiosyncratic, if you like. But I think that a lot of people use uh, terms like that, incite um, maybe things like that to suggest that it's just this small corner of Neanderthals off over in the corner and you can ignore them. And I am saying that is not true. That has not been true in my lifetime. It's not true in your lifetime. And the fact of the matter is when you're running around in this country and probably uh, in more places than this, uh, at least half, if not the majority, uh, or the plurality, believe that the earth is young. And they get that from their understanding of the Bible as delivered to them by the Holy Spirit. And we we cannot ignore that, and I don't want that to be mischaracterized. That is a dominant view. Uh, yeah, and I certainly wouldn't dispute that it's a dominant view. Uh, in contemporary American culture, but you know what? In, in contemporary evangelical American culture, sadly, Trump support is also a dominant view. Seventy-eight percent of contemporary American evangelicals think Donald Trump is doing a good job, and I think that, that is uh, it's an abomination and it's a historical anomaly. Um, so, I think that we have to. It always helps rather than just to take a snapshot in time of one particular group in one geopolitical region of the world and think that that is somehow representative of the mainstream view, let alone that that is the one orthodox view that is the only viable view to be held. I think we have to rather take a wider view and look at historically what Christians down through history have believed. So, for example, in the 5th century, Augustine, St. Augustine, probably the most influential Christian after the New Testament era, he wrote what was called the literal commentary on Genesis, and he offers what is essentially a dehistoricized Neoplatonic interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. And that was a very common view in the ancient church, which was not tied to a young earth at all. Uh, he did not have a view upon uh, on such matters. So there has always been this diversity. And if you take a very strong view, I'm going to just throw it back to you, uh, such as that anyone that disagrees with this young earth creationist view is simply upholding an untenable position. 
then you set a really high evidential bar for yourself because you have to show that people like St. Augustine and, and people like me, that we're simply holding an untenable view. And, and I don't think that you've gotten anywhere near la that evidential threshold. Well, I'm going to try to get close to that, uh, just so you know. <laughs> when you're, and sorry to interrupt, sure. but uh, well, you can answer that. But in, in answering that as well, I, if you could throw in an answer to this quick question for you, um, and then maybe go back and forth on that, but do you think, so Randall is correct that an old earth understanding is very ancient. Um, there is this diversity of views. So do you think taking a, a literalistic approach, are, are there any indications in the text itself that might indicate the earth is old or is it all one way in your view? Like it's all young earth, if, if you guys wanna go back and forth on that as well. Now, was that directed to me or Randall? That's directed towards you first and okay. then, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I, I think there is. But beyond that, I, I would push back on the notion that uh, old Earth is the dominant view of the ancient world. I don't know that I don't think that's the case. I don't even think that's the dominant view of the biblical authors. But I think more to the point, it wasn't necessarily the, the question they were asking. I think it was the assumption. And maybe, you know, it became a question at some point. So I tie, uh, I, I, I acknowledge and maybe wrongly that I am tying a young earth, uh, a young earth view with a literal reading of Genesis. And I, I'm using these terms almost synonymously. And so I'll give Randall a chance to comment on that. Uh, I think whether they had any specific thoughts of how old the world was is almost irrelevant to the larger question of how literally they took the first three chapters of Genesis. And I think uh, even beyond age of the earth questions, I think that they were very literalist in their reading. And I think it shows uh, throughout scripture. Now, I, I'd like to push back on, on one point, because um, so you, you've, uh, you've sort of aligned yourself quite clearly with Ken Ham's hermeneutic on this point. But even based upon what you've said, David, it would seem that you'd have to concede that Ken Ham is very inconsistent uh, because uh, Ken Ham is supposed to be taking the text literally. But as you've rightly pointed out, uh, the Genesis text includes ancient science, uh, such as this belief in a flat earth and an ocean above and a hard dome or rakia that upholds this ocean above up over the earth. Uh, so it would seem that on that point, Ken Ham is, is being inconsistent. And in another place, for example, number 16, it refers to an earthquake opening up and people falling down into what is literally Sheol, is the realm of the dead. Uh, so in, in numbers, uh, it reflects this view that underneath the earth and the core of the earth, there is an empty cavern that holds the realm of the dead. And that's where people go when they die. It's a very concrete view. And in fact, some early Christians held that view. Tertullian held that view in the early third century. He talked quite explicitly about a literal cavern underneath the earth and the souls of the dead go there when they die. So uh, if Ken Ham were actually being consistent, he would not only say that there is six literal 24-hour days, he would also say that there is a literal dome and that there's a literal cavern underneath the earth. Uh, where the souls of the dead go, and that the earth is literally flat, and there's a literal ocean above it. And of course, he says none of those things, because his uh, literal hermeneutic is actually very arbitrary and inconsistent. So besides the flat earth part, I think he would say those things. Uh, I I grew up in a tradition that would definitely have said those things. Uh, now, I, 
as far as that the, in, a, that the, well, the interior yeah, of the earth being uh, cavernous, I don't know that we would have said that. I mean, look, we had scientists, <laughs> physicists, chemists as well. Uh, but we would have said that the biblical description of, say, the firmament, uh, the, what you're calling the rocky, I think most people would know the word firmament because we don't know Hebrew. Um, is uh, they would they would say yeah that was literally true and uh, the flood destroyed it and or removed it but that was a literal description of the world at the time and so I I think that what Ken Ham would say uh, I I hate to be in a position of speaking for Ken Ham um, but I I think you know being being as uh, generous as I can to what I think his position is having had one very similar is that these literal descriptions of the uh, earth were proper literal descriptions at one time. Yeah, so um, that's actually this idea that the firmament is is uh, disappeared uh, at the point of the flood. That's a, a young earth creationist talking point, but that's not actually what the Hebrew Bible teaches. So it continues in the Psalms to talk about the firmament as part of creation. I know. So I think that's a good example <laughs> where, where they're trying to uh, retain this position, but in fact, their position is uh, unsustainable. I agree uh, with and, that. And, Just so and, you and, know, and, I'm, I'm not trying to defend Ken Ham's position or defend this position as scientifically accurate. I'm I'm simply suggesting that this seems to be what the biblical writers were trying to say. And I take your point that if you're, if you're going to go with, you've got to literally accept what the biblical writers are going to say, you have to accept a lot more than just a six-day creation. I agree with all of that. But, so my point, is, my point is, again, that Ken Ham is being fundamentally inconsistent, that he's not following a consistent principle of interpretation uh, because he and his, his acolytes they are, are trying, for example, they're trying to argue that there is a, a one common view again. Is that, as you referred to it, that the firmament was destroyed in the flood? Well, the text doesn't say that, and it, is in, it continues to exist in Psalms. So that's just false view of, on their part. And, and again, the, the text does clearly assume, and that was the background Hebrew understanding, that there is a three-storied universe. This was the common ancient Near Eastern understanding. So rather than him... Uh, asegetically reading back, so the term asegesis means to project back or read back into the text, a meaning that isn't there, rather than for him to asegetically read back his version of contemporary young earth creationist science and claim the text has it, he should be recognizing that it had an ancient science and that God, God accommodated to that ancient science to communicate certain theological principles. So that's the view I've been uh, Defending, I think it's the consistent view in contrast with his view, and thus the more defensible one. Sure, but setting Ken Ham aside, because I've got some experience thinking this way myself, uh, I think that what my best self from the past might have said was, yeah, we can take a lot of what Job said, for instance, what's written in Job, um, figuratively, uh, because if for no other reason, there are no significant doctrines hanging off of the book of Job. Uh, and so whether you take them figuratively or not, it, it would not matter in the grand scheme of things. But Genesis 1, you cannot treat it that way. And there are significant doctrines hanging off of uh, the literal reading of Genesis. And so uh, I think that 
there, it, it is going to be a little bit more concrete in how we have to think about uh, Genesis as opposed to Job and some of the other illusions uh, about the world uh, in the Bible. Okay, so uh, we're, we're going to say, we're talking here about mere Christianity. Mere Christianity is uh, famously stated in, in a, a creedal confession such as the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so you have there a reference to a uh, triune God or a tripartite God, a Father, Son, and Spirit, three divine actors, one God. Uh, you have creation, uh, you have fall, and then through Christ you have redemption and restoration and his Holy Spirit working in the church. And that's kind of the picture you get in, um, in uh, Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. What important doctrines uh, in your estimation that are at the core of mere Christianity hinge upon a young earth creationist interpretation of Genesis chapter one. So first of all, when I was a Christian, I wouldn't have accepted mere Christianity. So I did, I wasn't a mere Christianity kind of a Christian. Uh, so I, I would have said, first of all, that's nonsense. Um, Christianity is all encompassing of uh, God's word uh, as revealed to us. And so your mere Christianity is simply trying to boil down the, the complicated and difficult and challenging bits so that you don't have to deal with them. Uh, so I, yeah, I would, I would actually reject the notion of mere Christianity. I would go back to a biblical version of uh, God's will for us. And I would take the, God, I hate, I hate myself so much. I would take the Hamian position <laughs> in saying that you don't have the um, authority to distill uh Genesis through Revelations down to a few bullet points that you happen to like. Okay, I, I think at this moment that, that the real nature of the debate is coming into clearer focus. Because based upon what you've said then, you're, you're saying, if I want to be a fundamentalist Christian, uh, then the consistent way to do so is to adopt Ken Ham's hermeneutic. And if that's all you're saying, then, you know, fine, you win that debate. But I wouldn't, wasn't contending that point. Uh, what I was concerned to contend is with his, is historic Christianity. Right. So again, the kind of Christianity that is captured in the Apostles' Creed, and the idea that we distinguish between dogmas, or in other words, uh, essential doctrines, the heels that you die on within Christian faith and practice, and you distinguish those from adiaphora, in other words, non-essential doctrines or ones that are incidental to the essential identity of the Christian uh, that That is a fundamental and central orthodox distinction. Uh, now, you can just say, no, you have to accept everything I believe or the fundamentalist believes as a dogma in order to be a consistent Christian. But then again, I would just say that person has placed themselves outside of the mainstream orthodox opinion of Christianity. And sure, so but you've also probably- you've highlighted your favorite creed, and there are other creeds. And so I don't, I'm not bound by uh, your creed either if— what I'm trying to do is figure out what's important in Scripture. But I, I do want to meet you at least halfway because I, the question, I think the heart of the question uh, goes beyond the specific question that you asked, which is which, what fundamental Christian um, elements are challenged by uh, younger theology. And I, I do want to address that. Uh, so it, whether they appear in a particular uh, favorite creed or not is is not terribly important to me. But just, just to give you an example, uh, death uh, death and decay uh, and destruction, fall of perfection, if you will, was brought on by the uh, sin of humans. 
I don't think that we get that with old earth theology. Now, this is one of the points that Ken Ham brought up. It's one of the points that I would have brought up when I was six. Um, so, and I, and I don't really hear a lot of good answers to this, but I, I think that it is crucial to the Christian project that we establish the bad news first and then the good news. And the bad news is that we are fallen uh, and, and separated from God through sin, uh, through the fault of humans, and that there is only one way for redemption. Uh, and the creation story tells us how that happened and when, the, when death came into the world. If death came into the world billions of years ago, then the redemption story is a lie. So that that would be my my first uh, challenge to an important Christian doctrine that just doesn't work if the world is young or or old. <laughs> it, it doesn't work. And so so yeah, I'll let let Randall answer that because I think that's an important point. Um, but after after you're done, Randall, I have a a quick question that I think might help uh, for you for you guys to discuss. Um, so yeah, f- first go ahead and answer um, David's question about death. Yeah. So. Um, I want to say three things here. The first thing, I just want to briefly come back to the Apostles' Creed is not my favorite creed per se. I'd probably say the Messiah Creed of 1960 is my favorite creed. The Apostles' Creed is probably, certainly within Western Christendom, the most universal creed uh, in its earliest form. It dates back to around the year 150, and that's why I cited it, is because it is such a central, recognized, basic summary of Christian Orthodox belief or mere Christianity. Now, the second thing I would say is that David, you said, uh, if if this did not happen as written, then the text is lying. And I would say you're getting over your skis rhetorically on that. I mean, at the very most, what you would have is the text is in error in some declaration. Uh, clearly, uh, it doesn't follow that the human authors, let alone the divine author, was intending to lie to form a false belief in the reader. So uh, I think you should just pull that back a bit. Fine, fine. I uh, but, grant it. Yeah. <laughs> Now, now, in, in terms of the, the, the point about death and the fall, so uh, the one thing I would say, yes, this is it's a good point to raise, that, and that's one reason that a lot of young earth creationists are drawn to the position, is they see here, uh, in terms of sort of the problem of natural evil, that there's a greater attraction to the position of young earth creationism uh, rather than an old earth view. <clears throat> and so one thing I would say in terms of the young earth creationist position that I think it's still very unsatisfactory in terms of an explanation of natural evil, because what it ends up saying is that um, the brokenness in creation, things such as carnivory and predation, parasitism uh, and extinction and so on, all of these things came about as a result of the volitional actions of a couple of human beings in the ancient Near East. And so my question would be, in a concrete sense, how does that actually come about in your understanding? Uh, was the great white shark uh, swimming off the coast of uh, South Africa, for example, it was a herbivore that was just slurping up algae. And then suddenly, because of the actions of Adam and Eve, its dentition, its digestive tract, its whole body and physiology was transmogrified into this fearsome predator that we know today. Uh, I would think that still raises some very interesting theological questions and problems of natural evil for the young earth creationists. So I don't think that they have a special advantage when it comes to the problem of natural evil. A uh, second thing I would like to, to point out, 
uh, is that, uh, David, in your opening statement, you referred to this understanding of creation as being perfect in the beginning. Now, that is an Augustinian interpretation, or the same as an Augustinian interpretation, at least, of Genesis chapter 1. But that's uh, not, in fact, the oldest interpretation of Genesis. An older interpretation that goes back to Irenaeus in the second century is that creation was created good, but not perfect. It was created good, but with room to, for development to move into perfection. And Irenaeus made the point that he, uh, the Hebrew text in Genesis 1 never describes creation as perfect. It always describes it as good, a word that is consistent with further development and a movement toward perfection. So that's a second point to keep in mind. Uh, now, in terms of, well, how do you understand natural evil and suffering and so on? There have been proposals, such as William Dembski proposed, that uh, creation was created retroactively. The fall was, was created and brought into creation through the fall of human beings. Other people take um, another view where they say uh, that th this is, they kind of break it off altogether and say that the fall uh, is simply, this is a reflection again of the ancient science of the people, that they understood it in this way, but we now through Earth history, understand that you simply cannot tie uh, the fall or, or uh, natural evil predation and the fossil record and all these things with the original actions of human beings. And so you adopt other readings of the text in the same way that you adopt a different reading of the ascension that we have at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, because now we know that the earth is not three-storied, and thus when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he literally was not going up into the sky to get to God's right hand at his throne. So that's just a, a three points of quick reply. Okay, well that's that's great. So let me answer your question about the shark. Yes, <laughs> and and furthermore, uh, I I would just add to that. How did you think it was going to go? If you or at least the listener um, before God um, said that you would surely die. They were so they were going to live forever in the garden and have painless babies and you know how soon before the earth became overran uh they kind of had to sin uh, for this thing to work out so i i would uh, refer back to isaiah 65 um uh, 25 uh, this is kind of a vision uh, one of these visions I, I love these um uh passages there are a few of them like this of what utopia uh, would be like what what restoration would be like the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox uh, and dust shall be the serpent's food and they shall do no evil or harm uh, in all my holy mountain says the Lord now from Isaiah's perspective uh, or whoever this writer uh, of this particular part of the book of Isaiah was uh, predation is harm it's not just not perfect, it's harm. And this is this is a writer who does not seem to have in mind that this is how the world was for billions of years before humans came along. This is this is what humans brought about and what God will res uh, and then God will restore this this vision. So once again, I, I think that your questions are reasonable and part of the problem uh for this theo uh, theology, uh, the the writers of the Bible agree with six-year-old me. Um, so again, uh, so in the case of Isaiah 65, the writer is giving a bucolic image uh, that is related to 
uh, his experience culturally in the ancient Near East, the kind of animals he sees. Yes, he understands that there is a lack of shalom or peace or wellness within creation, and he longs to see that redressed, which I think is a central Christian concern. See, this is where we would come into what, again, is the core of mere Christianity. The core of mere Christianity, I would submit, is not that we all agree on exactly how creation became broken. For example, other Christians have said, well, maybe there was uh, an angelic fall, right? Before the presence of human agents on Earth, there was an angelic fall, and that explains some of the natural evil in the world. Uh, the core of mere Christianity is not that we all have unanimity in agreement on how creation became fallen or how it is broken and in need of healing in order to achieve shalom, but rather that we recognize that it is in need of shalom, that it is broken, that it does groan, as Paul says in Romans 8, and thus we await for that time when it achieves restoration and fulfillment in the fullness of the kingdom of God coming. That's at the center of mere Christianity, not this more robust claims of a young earth creationist fall that tie all natural evil to the actions of a particular pair of people living in the ancient Near East about six or seven thousand years ago. Okay, but it's not broken though. I I, I question. I, I I push back on that idea. The story, as the Bible gives it to us, tells us not only that it's broken, but how it's broken. Why we should think of it as broken. And you're saying, well, why we should think of it as broken, and as far as they're concerned, is all wrong. We just need to understand it's broken. But if I am right, and if evolution is right, it's not broken at all. It's just the way it is. I don't see any reason why I should look at a lion chasing an antelope as broken. I've seen a lot of uh, discovery. It's a, it's a beautiful dance to me. Uh, not so beautiful for the antelope, maybe. Um, and the lion doesn't always get the antelope. Sometimes the lion starves to death. I mean, but why, why you look at that and say, oh, well, that's obviously broken, I think is a presupposition uh, that I do not hold. Well, you know what? I would think on that point, you would disagree with Charles Darwin and you would even disagree with Richard Dawkins because both Darwin and Dawkins talked about natural evil in the world as a major problem uh, that they were trying to reconcile. How can you reconcile that with a loving, good God? So the fact that you, I mean, that's fine with me. If, if you don't see any problem there to, to reconcile or to resolve, but many other people have looked at suffering and creation and sentient creatures and seen a real problem there, and they have tried to reconcile it and understand it. But it is a problem if you posit a, a loving and all-powerful God. <clears throat> if you don't, it's not a problem. It's just the world. Okay, so so David, let Randall have the last response because I've got a, a question uh, okay. that I think help the audience. Okay. okay. So sorry, yeah, yeah, Randall, you'll get the last word on on this topic. Okay, well, the Canadians yeah, have I, ganged up on me. You see what's happening, yeah. right, people? Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, not, yeah. Now, now we're into the moral evil. The, issue. the Canadians finally up. win. Yeah, <laughs> finally win at something. Well, no, because it's I, I told it's you okay. I had a while back. We believe we believe the point. I get it. Go ahead. Go yeah. Go. Okay. Just, just so, just quickly. I, I mean, I, I do think that this. When, when you watch, for example, a predator tearing apart an, an animal, uh, it's just, it is a tragic thing. There's something that you think the world ought not be like this. Uh, it would be nice if, if that antelope didn't have to flee for its life uh, in utter fear and then eventually get tackled by the cheetah or the lion or whatever. Uh, so, but that is the way the world is. And so this is a deep impulse to recognize there is a groaning within creation. It is expressed in part through these processes of natural evil, of 
carnivory, of parasitism and predation. And so the you know, the Christian story of looking for redemption for this groaning is, I think, something that most people, when they look at aspects of nature, they can resonate with. Okay, so uh, Dale, I think that uh, you wanted to cut in at this point. Yep. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask um, a question for you, Randall, that maybe you guys can go back and forth on. that. It's critical when reading Genesis to understand, especially the early chapters, what the genre of the text itself is, because that can help you to understand how you read the details and that sort of thing. So, yeah, Randall, maybe just to start with you, what are your thoughts about the genre of these early chapters of Genesis and, and what impact that has on how we read it? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I, I referred to a couple terms earlier, cosmogony and etiology. So a cosmogony, or more uh, broadly, a, a cosmogonic creation narrative. So this is a story of, of origins, of how everything comes to be. Um, and an etiology is a Similar in a sense, an etiology in this grand cosmic sense is giving an account of the basic origins of things. Um, and I think that it, when you encounter cosmogenies or etiologies, and certainly when you encounter them in the ancient Near East, you need to understand that there, that there first of all, is a, a high degree of, of poetic quality to them and mythic quality. And we have to be careful here. By myth, we don't mean false. By myth, rather, we mean a story that conveys a universal significance, right? But it doesn't follow that you interpret it as you're reading a newspaper. And so I think that there are clearly mythic qualities to them and poetic qualities. So if we look at Genesis 1, we have the text uh, dividing creation into, yes, these six days. The first three days, if you read through the text, these are days of formation or structuring of mm -hmm. creation so that you have the division of, of light and darkness. You have the division of, of land and ocean and of waters above from waters below. Uh, and so the air and the land as well. So these are all the divisions that come into the first three days. And then the next three days, there is a filling of these different spheres. So the lights are now filled into the sun in the day and then the moon and stars at night. Uh, and then you have land animals and fish and birds in the air that are all filled within creation. And finally on the end of day six, you have the creation of human beings. So um, I think that that is a good tip off for us, that there is this poetic structuring for the creation narrative. And we have to be careful about reading it like we read a newspaper. Now, when it comes to Genesis 2, this is a very different account. And that's one reason that textual critics have long believed that there are, in fact, two different creation accounts here that have been have independent origins. And in fact, that the second one from Genesis 2 and 3 is the much older one. Uh, and that they were brought together by a redactor or by an editor, an editor. Uh, and so in the Genesis 2 account, some of the notable differences are that uh, man is created first, or Adam, humanity is created first, and then all the animals are created, but he's alone, and then finally Eve is created at the end. And that's a very different picture from Genesis 1, 26 to 27, where all animals are created, and then you have Adam and Eve humanity being created together at the same moment as the pinnacle of creation. And uh, one of the tip-offs here is, is that we have to recognize that the redactor, the editor who brought these narratives together, is not stupid. So he's aware of the tensions between these texts, if you interpret them literally, as two chrono chronological, straightforward accounts. But that's a good tip-off that they're not actually to be read in that fashion. So 
Uh, how do we read them? Well, the one thing I would want to say here, as I said earlier, is that they are to be interpreted primarily in a theological context. So, for example, many uh, interpreters have noted that there is, in essence, a disenchantment that is going on in Genesis 1, uh, that in the ancient Near East, uh, the common view was a very um, animistic view and a polytheistic view, that there were gods in everything, gods all around us. And what happens in Genesis is that all the different spheres that are understood to be the realm of different gods, such as the sea or the sky and the, the lights in the sky, and in particular the sun, that was commonly worshipped as the supreme deity, all of those now become things that are created by Yahweh, by the one creator God, uh, and they are all just aspects of his creation. And in that sense, it is a disenchantment, it is a polemical text against the gods of the ancient world, showing that Yahweh is the one supreme creator of overall. And I would suggest that that is the primary message that we should be taking from this text, not getting into the details that the young earth creationist would have us do. Gotcha. Yeah, David, did you have any thoughts about the genre or what Randall just said at all? Uh, yeah, but I'll I'll, I'll try to limit uh, much of it. I, I, let me just say this. Uh, the last thing uh, Randall said is something that I plan to do a little bit more writing about in the comments. So um, it's the we shouldn't get caught up in the details and we should just draw this important message that the author was intending. I would say that that is a very dangerous way to read the Bible because we don't know actually what message is they were intending. That's, that's where we have a lot of theological debates. Oh, well, the real message is this. You can ignore all that other stuff. Here's the real message they were trying to get to. And I think that um, I, don't, I don't have any reason to take Randall's word for what the real message is and what the unimportant dross is that we should uh, ignore. I think the Apostle Paul uh, would probably have something to say about what was and wasn't important there because he based almost his entire teaching on the role of women uh, on a literalist reading of Genesis. And so, you know, I don't know what he thought about the real message, but he certainly thought that some of these details were really important. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Um, I, I have one last question. Um, and, and it's for you, Dave, starting with you, David. Um, so Randall mentioned, um, and it's a theological topic, so I know you'll like it, but um, Randall mentioned in response to your, you know, we need to understand what the original authors said in their context and that sort of thing. And he made a point to, you know, remember, there's also the overall divine author. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, what sort of, do you allow that uh, to have any sort of significance in how we read the text? Um, can't there be meanings that the original authors maybe didn't uh, intend, uh, but could be a part of the text? Through the I, have, I have no access to a divine author. I have access to the literature as it's written and uh, to the human uh, work that's in front of me. Now, I am... Uh, a writer of things. In fact, I used to make my living writing articles So, I, a free, as a freelance writer. So um, I get writing. Uh, I've done collaborative writings. Um, I've, I've been on, you know, at the leadership of those collaborative writings trying to decide, you know, what is, what is the overall message? You know, what are, you know, division of responsibilities. There were no divine authors, there was there was just the authors. There's the stuff that we wrote uh, and what we meant by it. Randall is also a writer. 
a very prolific writer, and he has written collaborative works. There's no divine author. There's just the stuff that he wrote and the stuff that uh, you know his co-authors wrote and what they decided about that. And you, Dale, are going to be a prolific writer in your day. I've, I've seen your work. Uh, there's no divine author there. And so I, I, as a skeptic, have no reason to posit or accept uh, a divine author in this piece of literature. Uh, so, yeah, I have, I have no access to such a theory. There's no way to detect it. Okay. Um, yeah, Rand, Randall, what, what do you make of what David said about that? So I, I think what, what uh, David says boils down to is I think Christianity is false. Right? Well, I think Christianity is true. Uh, in Second Timothy 3, we read all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I think what that text is saying is that God has taken or appropriated human texts with human authors, and they are now God-breathed, or they have become God's word in some sense. And sometimes the word that God speaks through that text is the exact same word that the human author spoke. Sometimes there is a census plenier or a greater meaning to the text. Sometimes the very meaning of the divine author may diverge from what the human author intended. I would argue, for example, that this is the case when you have imprecatory psalms, which are psalms that express curses of enemies and describe God as actually hating certain human beings uh, and wanting to bring justice upon them. I interpret those as human projections upon God, and I interpret them in that way in light of the way God is revealed in Jesus in the New Testament. That becomes a canonical grid, an interpretive framework, I should say, through which I interpret the text. Now, if you believe there is no divine author, then yeah, you will say all we have is a bunch of human authors, uh, and we are projecting divine meanings onto those human authors. But if you believe Christianity is true and that God has revealed himself in Scripture, then you will believe that there is a divine author. So I think that we're just at this point at a fundamental disagreement as to the truth of Christianity, and that comes through in our presuppositions when we approach the biblical text. Perfect. Um, okay, uh, yeah, that, that does it for my questions. Um, I know Randall, he's, he's got to go in about five five minutes or ten, or ten minutes or so. Did you guys want to... Uh, did you want me to ask your questions or no, go into the no, no, statement? No, 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 we'll, uh, we'll just we'll just close out. Uh, Randall, do you have time to make a closing statement? Oh, sure. Um, I can say that it's it's uh, first of all been a lot of fun. Okay, hold on. I'm uh, gonna I'm gonna make mine first, and I'll make it short oh. so that you can have the last word. <laughs> okay, the last well, word is the most important word. Now, excellent. Okay, I'll okay. turn it over to you, Dave. <laughs> okay, so. Um, look, it has been fun uh, from my perspective. I don't think it necessarily comes down to uh, whether you accept Christianity or not, though. That's kind of getting the cart before the horse that's saying, well, you know, accept Christianity and then this Bible stuff makes sense. No, I think the Bible has to make sense for you to accept Christianity. And so I would I would kind of reject that uh, framing of it. And I would say that, uh, yes, maybe, who knows, maybe the uh, original authors had some broader intent I don't know, but I know how the Bible was interpreted by itself. Uh, many of you have heard people say, let the Bible interpret the Bible. Well, you know, I am letting the Bible interpret the Bible. And it seems like later writers uh, thought the Bible meant what, you know, con conservative thinkers today think 
thinks that it means. Uh, if there is some divine authorship that has a greater meaning than uh, what the authors intended, then we have to have some kind of access to that divine thinking, and we don't have access to that. And so once again, we're left to take uh, people like Randall's word for it. Now, Randall seems like an honest man, but I have no access to what he claims to know about the, the, uh, the, the divine author's intent in, in one place or another. And I think that in this case, Ken's ham, Ken Ham's view is much safer uh, in, in saying, uh, look, the divine author gave us the words and we should take all of the words, uh, seriously. And so, uh, you know, I, I do believe that there is, uh, in Christianity, this idea of the divine author, but I think it's rather problematic, especially when you're speaking to a skeptic, uh, because if it's one of those things that the, you know, requires the senses divinitatis and, you know, ours is broken, then we don't have any access to it. And I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and if I've got to go beyond what the words of the, the holy book say, then I'm out. And with that, I'm out, Randall. Okay, in, in our exchange, I've, I've sought to, to point out, first of all, that young earth creationism is a historically idiosyncratic view. Uh, that doesn't make it false, but it does mean that it doesn't get to be the default position of genuine uh, critical reading of Scripture. Um, and that there have been a diversity of interpretations of, of Scripture and of Genesis throughout history, uh, and that, in fact, young earth creationism is inconsistent because it uh, interprets some aspects literally, but then tries to explain away other aspects like the Rakia by arguing that it collapsed in the, in the flood when, in fact, there's no evidence in the text that it did so. Uh, so I introduced a principle of accommodation, says that theologically God accommodated to the ancient science of the world in order to communicate theological messages, such as uh, that God is divine creator overall, uh, that the text does uh, wrestle with the problem of natural evil and the fall through an ancient understanding of science, um, that the Christian can still have all the central aspects of Christianity that you have in uh, summarized in something like the Apostles' Creed, which is the most ancient of all Western creeds and universally held of all Western creeds, uh, that one does not need to find young earth creationism as any, anything like an entailment of Christianity or uh, an integral reading of Scripture. Um, I also, uh, so David mentioned that the, the biblical authors interpreted in the way that he supposes, and I gave evidence that that's not the case. So, for example, I referenced when Paul talks about uh, Jesus and calls him the last man, and he calls uh, Adam the first man, that that's clearly not a chronological statement, but rather that is a statement where he's appealing to Adam and to Jesus, both as archetypes of an old humanity and a new humanity. So I think rather than, than reading these in a sort of flat-footed historical way, we have to read them more from a theological perspective and try to understand what the text is trying to teach us theologically. Uh, and so I don't think, to conclude that David has met his very high evidential bar, to argue that anybody that does not adopt the young earth creationist interpretation of the text is being inconsistent with the text and lacks hermeneutical integrity. I think, on the contrary, that I've exhibited a significant hermeneutical integrity, a fidelity to the broadness of the Christian tradition, and a due recognition of the distinction between the essentials of mere Christianity and the adiaphora, or the non-essentials on which Christians can reasonably disagree. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank both of you, uh, Randall and and David. It's been a great combo. Uh, listening in as the moderator, I, I learned a lot. I especially liked um, that Randall and I agree 100% on um, mere Christianity or Christianity proper. And I learned a 
um, a couple of technical words that there's actually technical words for the differentiating them. So yeah, um, I enjoyed the conversation. I hope both of you guys enjoyed your time. Oh, yes, absolutely. In fact, as Sarah would say, uh, I think that uh, that is a fine example of taking the biscuit. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I got to say that again, uh, I had just as much fun, if not more than I did the first time I was on here. Uh, uh, of course, I'm not going to have any problems with Dale, uh, but David yeah. as well. We disagree about many things, but uh, we can do so agreeably. And, and uh, I like to always kind of end with this little thing, recognition that in an age where there's so much heat between polarized and binary oppositions where people just cannot like each other, even though they disagree, that I'm happy to say that I can very much like David, even though we, we disagree about some pretty important issues. So thank you for a very interesting and productive exchange. Thank you. And I I, I love having Randall on because Randall is a quick thinker. I mean, it's, it's not like we planned any of this. Uh, so there's a lot of thinking on the feet, and Randall has uh, the ability to push me uh, mentally uh, <laughs> in, in ways that, frankly, I don't get pushed a lot. So I appreciate that. Uh, next week, uh, it's going to be Dale and I on prayer. Dale, do not correct me. As we record this, we have not recorded with Michael Brown yet, but you will have already heard Michael Brown. <laughs> And so next week, it will be Dale and I on prayer. Randall, I hope to uh, talk to you again uh, before too long. Excellent. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye-bye.